All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Grateful to get to open God's Word with you. Uh, really encouraged by the update from our friends over at Eastside Church, Michael and Ben. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, this uh, River City, if you didn't know, this River City was a church that was planted, begun, started just a few years ago here in Dubuque in order to help reach this city with the good news about the gospel and who Jesus is. And, and it might seem odd to you to have a, a church that's recently planted be helping another church get planted. Uh, but that's at the heart of what we want to be about here at River City. We want to be a church that multiplies the work in the ministry of the gospel in all different kinds of places, whether that's in our city or in other cities or all across the world. And so we're really excited to be a part of what God is doing there. And so I was really encouraged by that. Um, looking forward as well this morning to opening God's word with you. Uh, the past few weeks, we have been working our way through the first few couple of chapters in the book of Revelation. And, and the first couple of chapters, in a lot of ways, are kind of like the uh, kind of like the intro to the rest of it, but without the crazy, a lot of it. Uh, and uh, so we're just dipping our toes into Revelation this time. But the bulk of those first three chapters, it consists of seven short letters that are written by Jesus himself to various churches uh, in uh, the ancient Roman world in an area um, known as the province of Asia, which is now kind of basically the western coast of Turkey. And at the time that these letters were written to these churches, uh, things were not going particularly well. It was the end of first century, and, and each of these churches were facing significant challenges. And to various degrees, they were all being threatened by things like false teaching or temptation towards idolatry or immorality or spiritual complacency and apathy and, and all kinds of very intensifying versions of persecution. And so it's in the midst of these really challenging, difficult situations and circumstances that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus appears to the Apostle John while he's exiled on the island of Patmos, and he has some crucial messages for his church, some really important messages. They were messages we've seen the past few weeks that were meant to comfort and strengthen these young churches and meant to encourage them and to empower them towards faithfulness and obedience unto him, but they were also messages that were intended to correct and rebuke these churches to call them to repentance from idolatry and immorality and complacency. These were messages that each of these churches desperately needed to hear. And I hope that what we've seen as we've studied the last few weeks is that, that these are also messages that you and I need to hear. In fact, every letter ends with this phrase. It ends with the, it ends with the invitation, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, because the reality is, is that every church in every age needs to hear and to heed Jesus' words to these seven churches in Revelation. You see, an, an understanding that these seven letters contain truth that you and I need to hear and be challenged by, that helps us to approach them with an attitude of humility and to ask the question, how might we be like these churches? Are the, the things that Jesus commends or condemns, how might, how might those be speaking to us? Or, or how, might, how might we become like these churches that Jesus commends or condemns? And, and so while these letters may not have been written to us, while we're kind of reading someone else's mail, they are absolutely written for us. And the question is, as we dive into the letter this morning to the church in Sardis, as it is with every one of these seven letters, will we have ears to hear? Will we choose to listen to what Jesus has to say to his people, to his church, in every age? 
And so to that, and let's pray this morning as we begin our study in God's word and take a look at the, ch- the letter to the church in Sardis. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we just really humbly say, we really need you. God, I need you to fill me by your spirit so that our, I might be able to teach uh, not just what is right, but teach what is true and good and life-giving. God, and, and we need you as well to enable us to respond rightly to your word. God, to hear it as from you and to be able to have ears to hear and to listen. God, your word says that you're the one who opens blind eyes and you're the one who causes those who are deaf in their ears to be able to hear. And so, King Jesus, we say we need you to enable us to hear and see this morning. And so we're grateful for your word that you would keep it for us and give it to us so that we might hear from you. By your spirit, help us to respond rightly to it this morning. God, we need you. We cannot do it on our own, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 3, the first few verses. begins this way. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, that you have what you have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Here you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Sardis, this letter was written to, it had a very impressive past. It had a really impressive past. For centuries, the city had served as the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, reaching the peak of its wealth and influence and prestige around 700 BC, which had been about maybe 800 years before the, this, this letter was written to the church in the city. <clears throat> and the city's former prominence, it was due in large part to the city's really strategic location. The city was kind of situated on this plateau or this high, high plateau, and, and the citadel, or kind of like the fortress in, within the city, was, was about 1,500 feet above the main roads that formed the city, and it was perceived and kind of seen as this impenetrable fortress. But the city had quickly sunken into obscurity after the Persians surprisingly conquered the city when watchmen on the tower, when watchmen of the citadel, they had neglected their duties and failed to detect an enemy army that was, supposedly, that was sneaking up its supposedly impenetrable walls. And so the city was conquered and it kind of fell into obscurity. Finally, in AD 17, the city was devastated by a massive earthquake And while Roman aid had helped to partially rebuild the city, at the time that this letter was written to it, this city was a shadow of its former self. It was just a shadow of what it once had been. And unfortunately, what we read in the letter to the church in Sardis is that the the story of this church, it had tragically and sadly come to mirror the history of the city it found itself in. You see, this church had an impressive past. 
At one time, it was known as a flourishing, active, successful church. But now, Jesus says that all you have is a reputation. Sadly, it was a reputation that no longer matched the reality of what was going on inside. It had a reputation, but it had no real substance. It was just a shadow of what it once was, like the city it found itself in. Although it had a reputation for being alive, Jesus could see that it was not. Jesus could see that it was not. And so it's into this context that Jesus, Jesus Christ himself, he introduces himself in verse 1 as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in chapter 1, the glorious, triumphant, risen, reigning, ruling Jesus, he, he appears to the Apostle John, and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. And, and in chapter 1, Jesus tells John that these stars, they represent the angels. Literally, that word is the messengers of the churches. And, and Jesus may be referring to heavenly, angelic messengers or earthly messengers. Maybe they might be pastors of these churches. Or, or, or maybe those, the stars might simply represent a, a personification of each church's true identity. But whatever the stars or the angels or whatever it is, whatever those things represent, the fact that Jesus holds them in his hand is meant to show his absolute and complete power and control over them. And so Jesus reminds this church, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. Similarly, the reference to the seven spirits of God draws us back to chapter 1, where in verse 4, John, John greets the recipients of these letters on behalf of Jesus. He says, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come from the, and from the seven spirits before his throne. That, that phrase, the seven spirits of God, it, it's a reference specifically to the third member of the Trinity or the Holy Spirit. And while there is only one Holy Spirit, in Scripture, the word se the, the number seven, it always references and refers to a seven of completeness and fullness and presence. And so when the Holy Spirit is referred to as the, the seven spirits of God, it represents the fullness and completeness of the Spirit's work and his power and his energy. And so, and so this letter, um, you see, what, you see in additionally in Revelations 5, 6, uh, refers to the Holy Spirit the, or the sevenfold Spirit of God in Revelation 5 as Jesus' eyes sent out into all the earth highlighting the fact that, that he sees and that he knows everything. And so this letter, it begins with a declaration of the sovereign power and authority of the risen, reigning, ruling king who is writing to them. He is the one who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars in his hand. He sees the, the hearts of the people of this church, not just their external reputation. He, and he, by his spirit, has the power to change their spiritual reality. As one commentator writes, In Sardis, as in the seven other cities, Christ has in his hands both the needy church and the life-giving spirit of God. And he can bring the two together, not only to diagnose what is wrong, but also to revive the dead. You see, this, this spiritually dead or dying church, what it needed was a spiritual revival. And from the very beginning, Jesus was making clear that the revival that they needed could only come from him. It could only come from him. 
You see, there was nothing they could do on their own strength or in their own wisdom or with their own resources to fix the problem, to fix what was going on. Instead, they needed the sovereign King Jesus, the risen, ruling, reigning King of all. They needed him to graciously intervene in their lives and in their church. What we see in this letter is that that's exactly what he does. You see, the one who sees and knows not just reputations but reality, he goes on to tell this church I know your deeds. And instead of the commendation that that follows those words in almost every other one of these seven letters, Jesus here, he has only words of criticism for this wayward church. And they are devastatingly brief. He tells them in verse 1, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are you are dead. You see, if you were to ask the people in and around the city of Sardis, hey, what do you think about that church that's there? They would likely have lots of positive things to say. They, maybe they were a church that was serving their city well or doing lots of kind of drive-by acts of kindness or just trying to make the place where they lived a better place and things that everybody likes, things that look good on the outside. But Jesus says, while people in and around your church might have a perspective or a, a positive opinion about you, I know the truth. I know what is true and the reputation you have, it does not line up with reality. You see, there is nothing wrong with having a good reputation. It is, in fact, well and good. We are encouraged to pursue that in Scripture. The problem is, is that a reputation is all this church had. And Jesus says, it is not enough. It's not enough. Verse 2, he tells them, I have found your deeds unfinished. I have found them insufficient in the sight of my God, implying that while their, their works and their deeds, they might pass human scrutiny, they might be perceived as others, as the thing that makes this church alive. Jesus says, I see past your deeds. I see through the thing on the surface. And what I can see is that while your reputation might pass human inspection, it does not pass mine. You are found utterly lacking in, in, in God's eyes because what he cares most about is what's going on in their hearts and what he can see is that while this church might be active or alive on the surface, when it comes to what's happening internally in their hearts, what's going on spiritually inside of them, he says they have fallen asleep. One pastor noted, Jesus' criticism of this church reminds us of the sobering reality that you could be a smashing success with man and yet a horrible failure with God. You could be doing things that people think are great and yet stand before God and be found wanting. You see, Jesus sees past the surface. He sees past what is on the surface. He sees into our hearts, into our motivations, into the why behind anything that we're doing. And he sees what's going on in this church, and he says, while you might look alive on the outside, you are in a deep spiritual coma underneath. You see, but Jesus, he doesn't just criticize this church. He doesn't just call them out on their problems. He doesn't just condemn them. No, instead he says, we see that he confronts them. You see, and while his confrontation of this church, while it might feel really harsh, while it might feel like he's just kind of like laying it on thick with them, It's actually a demonstration of his gracious and merciful love for this church because what is abundantly clear is that Jesus' desire for this church is not destruction. His desire for them is revival. And in verses 2 and 3, we see there are four elements to Jesus' revival, his revival wake-up plan for this church. And it starts with a spiritual wake-up call. Verse 2 begins, 
wake up. Wake up. You see, the first step towards spiritual revival, both personally and in the church, is an honest awareness that something is actually wrong. You see, Jesus confronts them in the midst of their blindness to their own spiritual condition. They are, you would imagine them coming to church, gathering as a church on, on this day, and they find that there's a letter that's come to them, and it's from Jesus himself. You would imagine how excited they would have been as they heard the letter to the church in Ephesus, and they heard the letters to all these other churches read And yet it comes to them, and and the king comes to them, and his words towards them, he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but I see instead that you're dead, that you've fallen asleep. Jesus confronts them. Do you imagine how surprised they might have been by those words? How that might have come to them as an utter shock. On the outside, things look good, but God sees that there is an inner reality that is missing. There's something in here that, is, that has gone wrong. You see, they needed to see the reality of their reputation not with man. They needed to see the reality of their reputation before God. See, it doesn't matter what other people think about your spiritual health. It doesn't matter what I think even as your pastor. Ultimately, it matters what God thinks because he is the one that not only sees the truth, but he determines the truth. He, he sees what spiritual health is and he determines what it means and what it is and he sees it in us. And just as God's word intervened 2,000 years ago as a wake-up to wake up this church to the reality of their spiritual condition, I need you to hear this this morning. It is meant to do the same thing for you and I this morning as well. You see, some of you are here this morning, and God has brought you here to graciously hear his spiritual wake-up call for the first time this morning. to to come face-to-face with the reality of your spiritual condition before him. You see, maybe you've gone to church all your life. Maybe you just go on Christmas or Easter. Maybe you've never been to church before. But in any case, you kind of just think that you're you're, you're doing all right. You're, You're pretty good. Yeah, you might have some spots in your life that you need to work on. You might have some things that need some touch-ups. You might need a little bit of help to kind of clean things up. But in general, you're, you're, you're doing all right. But the, what the Bible actually has to say about the reality of our condition is that unless we have surrendered our lives to King Jesus and trusted completely in his life and death on our behalf, then we're not actually just doing okay before God. The Bible says that without that faith in him, that we are, that we are enemies of his, that we are sinners, that we are mutinous rebels who have rejected his good kingly authority, his rule and reign, and we have enthroned ourselves as God, and that we stand at odds with him. And to make matters worse, the Bible says that, that the reality is that you're not just enemies of God, that you are spiritually dead, which means, among other things, that you are unable to fix yourself. You are unable to heal yourself. You need a spiritual life breathed into you that only he can give. And as I speak this morning, as we study God's word, that that voice that you are hearing in your heart, that's drawing you into the things that I'm saying, that, that is affirming the things that I am mentioning, that is God's gracious voice speaking to you. That is him mercifully and lovingly uh, waking your dead heart up to the reality of your need for him. Some of us are here and you need to hear God's wake-up call, his spiritual wake-up call for the first time this morning, but for others of us, like it was for the, word, for the church in Sardis, Jesus' words here are meant to shake us awake from our spiritual slumber. 
You see, the, the city of Sardis, it had a reputation for being an impregnable military stronghold. But more than once in its history, it was defeated because the watchman had fallen asleep on the job. And the same thing had happened to this church. And we don't have a lot of insight. The letter doesn't tell us. History doesn't really tell us exactly what had led to the spiritual sleepiness in this church. But one very real possibility is that they had just stopped proclaiming the gospel to their city. See, one of the best indicators of a spiritual sleepiness is a lack of urgency when it comes to demonstrating and declaring the good news of the gospel to people who don't know it yet. It's one of the best indicators of a spiritual sleepiness in our hearts. You see, unlike the other letters, we don't see any mention of false teachers. We don't see any mention about poverty or suffering or persecution in this letter. Apparently, living out their faith in Sardis was causing no friction with their society in any real way. And as one commentator writes, no friction usually means no motion. There was no opposition because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. The people in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. You see, the church in Sardis, they were in a deep spiritual coma, approaching death, but not beyond Christ's ability to wake up. And so he calls to this church. He calls them to wake up from their spiritual sleepiness, from their apathy towards him and towards the gospel. And his call to this revival, it begins with the declaration that they are in fact asleep, but it doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he instructs them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. And in verses 3, he tells them how to do that. He says, remember what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. See, the road to revival in this dead, dying church, it wasn't going to come from this church trying harder and doing better. It wasn't going to come from them just kind of pulling up their spiritual bootstraps and just wanting it a little bit more, just giving it their best college effort. Instead, instead of turning inward to their own effort, Jesus tells them they needed to turn around, to look backwards, to remember what they had received and what they had heard. See, the message that Paul had declared to them through the church in Ephesus, a message of first importance, it was the good news of the gospel, about who Jesus is and all that he had done, about the redemption and the life that is found through faith in him, in his life and his death given on their behalf. One, a message of grace, not of, not of merit. You see, the bad news is that without Jesus, the reality is that we are spiritually dead enemies of God. Oh, but the radically good news of the gospel that the church in Sardis needed to remind themselves of and to hold fast to is that God, by his grace, had made them alive. Ephesians 2, 4 and 9 explains it this way, for God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin. For it is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Jesus says, I need you to remember. I need you to remember the goodness of that truth. I need you to remember the radical 
the radical transformation that that news brings about in your life. I need you to remember. You see, when we remember the reality of who we are without Jesus and the incalculable value of what he has done for us, what it does is it wells up for in us a spiritual passion for him. It wakes our hearts up to him. See, it, it gives us a passion for Jesus, a spiritual life and alertness that would rival the physical energy of any teenager just pounded a couple of Red Bulls before youth group or whatever it is, right? You see, the, the life that the gospel gives, it energizes our spiritual lives in a way that nothing else can and see, the reality is that unless you are continually coming back to the truth of the gospel, can continually remembering who we are without Jesus and, and who he is and all that he has done for us, who we are now are in him, we will constantly be drifting towards spiritual sleepiness. That's why we make such a big deal about the gospel here at River City. That's why I can guarantee you that if you ever come here on a Sunday, you will hear me talking about the person and the work of Jesus and how that transforms and changes everything about who we are. You see, the gospel is not just good news for people who have not heard it yet. The gospel is meant to be good news for us every day, ongoingly, in every part of our lives. You see, it's like the hub of a wheel in which every part of our lives must connect. You see, the gospel is good news that changes us. You see, in the revival that just this church needed it began with Jesus' wake-up call and his challenge for them to strengthen their faith by returning around and remembering, remembering the truths of the gospel, the good news about his life and his death, how it had changed the reality of their spiritual condition because without him they were dead. Not just a little bit alive, not just, not just a little bit, not just they could help themselves a little, they were dead. And Jesus had come pursuing them and made them alive. You see, but turning around and remembering the gospel, it not only strengthens this church spiritually by fueling their passion for Jesus and ours, it strengthens us by leading us to another kind of turning around. It's a turning around at the end of verse 4 Jesus calls for. It's a turning around of repentance. You see, Jesus calls this sleepy church to wake up, to wake up to the reality of their spiritual slumber, that it is leading them away from him, not towards him. You see, the reality is that you are never standing still in your relationship with Jesus. You are either walking towards him or you are walking away from him. And Jesus says your spiritual slumber is not just a problem, it is sin. And I need you to repent of it. To See, repentance is to, to admit and to reject. In this case, in this church, they needed to, they needed to admit their spiritual sleepiness. That he needed to acknowledge that there was something going on in their heart that although on the outside they might look alive, what was going on in the, on the inside, there was a deadness, there was an, there was an apathy, there was, a, there, was, there, was a, there was a weakness there. They needed to admit that, to be honest about it, and to turn from it. That word repentance, it means to turn around and to change directions, and it requires that we confess our sin to God that we admit to him that we are heading in the wrong direction and that we acknowledge to him and to ourselves that it is a problem. Not making excuses, not shifting the blame, not looking for a way out, owning that reality so that we might turn away from it. You see, and the turning that happens in repentance is one that only happens when we keep coming back to the good news of the gospel. We keep seeing the reality of who Jesus is and all that he has done and who we are. 
and it leads us to cling ever more tightly to him as our hope and joy in life. See, the reality is that a life characterized by repentance does not indicate spiritual weakness. It indicates spiritual strength. I talked about how a lack of urgency when it comes to proclaiming Jesus is an indicator of our spiritual sleepiness. An even better indicator of a spiritually sleepy heart is one in which there is no ongoing life of repentance. See, the truth is that the more we follow Jesus, the more he opens our eyes to the depth and the scope of our sin and the more we have to repent of. And the good news is that repentance does not make you feel worse about yourself. It doesn't lead, to, lead you to feeling depressed because it's not brought about by guilt and shame. Instead, by, it's brought about by a renewed encounter with the magnitude of God's grace and his holiness that meet us and meet our sin in the good news of the gospel. You see, what happens is the more that we embrace repentance, the more that we acknowledge the reality of our sin before God and come to him and turn from it, <clears throat> the better and better the good news of the gospel and of Jesus' love for us gets. You see, when, when God graciously shows you the reality of your need for him, on one hand, and yet on the other hand, he shows you the magnitude of his provision for your need in the gospel. What happens is you see how much of a sinner you really are, yet you see how good the gospel is. And the more you realize how much of a sinner you are, the, more, the bigger and better and more beautiful and more glorious the gospel gets to you. You see, and so if there is a pattern, if there isn't a pattern of repentance in your life, it's not a sign that you are spiritually awake. It's a sign that you are spiritually sleepy. And I need you to hear this this morning. That's not just sad. You're not just missing out on the, on the goodness of the gospel, filling and fueling your life. Jesus says that it's dangerous. Jesus warned the Ephesian church that, if, that he would come and remove their lampstand, that he would close their church if they did not repent. He warned the church in Pergamum that he would war against them with the sword of his spirit if they did not repent. And here Jesus tells this church, if they don't repent, he's going to come like a thief when they least expect him. And this would mean judgment. But verse 4 goes on but there were, to tell us that there were a few in the church who had not fallen asleep spiritually. A few had not soiled their clothes. A few who had not grown comfortable and complacent in their world and with their lives. A few who instead were characterized by a consistent obedience and a courageous faith in the midst of their world. And Jesus makes two incredible promises to those who are victorious, to, to those like this faithful remnant who will hear his spiritual wake-up call and respond by returning to the gospel and returning to repentance. Like, like this faithful remnant, his first promise is he says that they too would be worthy to walk with him dressed in white. In the Bible, the word, that color white, it represents always purity and cleansing and forgiveness. And when believers in the Bible are referred to as wearing white, what it, what it refers to is that we wear the righteousness and the purity and the sinless perfection of Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of this is at the end of Revelation 19 in heaven when the, at the wedding supper of Jesus and the church, verse 7 reads this way, For let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, fine linen and bright and clean it was given to her to wear 
Isaiah 61, verse 10, it serves as a precursor to that day. He says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. You see, the good news of the gospel is that while our works will always be unfinished and insufficient to save us, to make us right with God, Jesus' work on our behalf is not. It is absolutely enough. It is absolutely sufficient. You see, when we surrender to him, when we reject our ability to clean ourselves up and to cleanse ourselves, when we reject our ability to to make ourselves right with him, when we reject the, the notion that we aren't really that bad, but instead we embrace our need for a savior and we put our faith completely in his life and his death on, on our behalf, we're not only forgiven, the Bible says that we are cleansed, made clean and pure. In his eyes. You see, sometimes what happens is we don't want to confess our sin. We don't want to acknowledge it to others or to God. We don't want to get caught, and so we we shift the blame, or we deny it, or ignore it, or or we downplay it, or we try to hide it. But the truth is not only that Jesus sees it, but his promise here is a reminder that he tells us to bring it to him. He says, come to me. I will embrace you. I will deal with the sin in your life, and I will clothe you in white. I will give you my righteousness. so that you might be able to go and live a new life of obedience unto me. See, that's the invitation that Jesus extends to us. One commentator expresses it this way. He says, holiness is always a gift of the Lord brought about in the life of the believer. It is the life of the Redeemer lived out in the redeemed. I need you to hear that again. Our our work before God is not the thing that makes us worthy before him. It's our faith in his life on our behalf that makes us worthy. You see, we are not worthy to walk with Jesus wearing white because of our work, but because of our faith in his cleansing work on our behalf. You see, and it is our lives lived out in a joyful remembrance of the gospel and in an ongoing repentance that reveal the reality of our faith in him. And that leads us to the second promise that Jesus makes in verse 5. Not only to preserve their names in his book of life, but to represent them before God the Father and his angels. See, the promise about names, their names not being blotted out, that would have been especially significant to people hearing this in the Roman Empire where this church was located, where citizenship was vitally important in providing and safeguarding a wide range of privileges and protections and rights under Roman law. In Roman cities, they would have all had a register, an official register with a list of the citizens of their city to which the citizens could be added or New citizens could be added or old citizens could be removed from. And so what Jesus is promising is that he will personally safeguard the record of their citizenship in his kingdom. And he's going to do that not by sending an ambassador, but by being our representative himself. You see, he will do it by personally representing us before the Father. 1 John 2 tells us, My dear children, I write this to you so that you would not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
You see, the reality that Jesus is reminding these believers of here is that although they might feel dirty or guilty, that they might feel unworthy, that if they have surrendered their lives to Jesus, putting their faith completely in him, then his life and his death on their behalf is enough. And Jesus looks at those who have put their faith in him and he says, I love you. My death was for you. It was enough for you on your behalf. I have taken your sin. I have given you my righteousness and I will claim you as mine before the Father. See, he says, you are secure in me. While your allegiance to me in this world might not bring you the kind of comfort or security you really long for, it gives you an eternal security that will make all of it worth it. It's a security we we don't deserve, one that we cannot earn, one that we do not merit, but one that the king has graciously given us. And if our lives reveal that our faith is in him, if our hope is in him, if, he is, if our hope is in his worthiness on our behalf. You see, when we take communion, that's what we're reminding ourselves of. We're reminding ourselves of all that Jesus did, about he, how he is the one who makes us worthy before the Father. He is the one who gives us an eternal security because our relationship with God is not rooted in our performance, but in his performance on our behalf, where because his body and his blood were broken and shed for us, then they were sufficient to make us clean, to, to cleanse us and to make us worthy of right relationship with him. And when we take communion, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him. God does not look at you differently when you take communion. Instead, what it is is a chance for us. It's an opportunity for us to remember. Jesus tells this church to remember and hold fast to, to remember his life, his death, given in grace for them. So that in remembering who he is and all that he has done, we might be filled with a love for him and a gratitude for him that overflows in a life of obedience unto him. So as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if, if he is the one that you worship as Savior and Lord, if he is the one in whom you trust to make you worthy to wear white and to walk with him, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. There's bread and juice on a table on the left and on the right, and you just go back and you dip the bread in the juice, and that's how you take communion here at River City. You don't, you don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if, if Jesus is not yet the one to whom you have surrendered your life, if, if you are still relying on your own performance, if you are looking to something else, or if you have failed to recognize your, your, the reality of your need for him, then I would encourage you this morning to hold off on taking communion. I say this every week, but you are welcome here. Wherever you are at in, in exploring who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and pursue life unto him, you are welcome here wherever you are at in that process. But instead of coming to the communion table this morning, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus. Surrender to him, receive him, ask him to transform you. You see, some of you this morning, you are here, and maybe for the first time you have heard Jesus' spiritual wake-up call to you. Don't snooze that alarm. Don't put it off. Don't, don't ignore it. Respond to it. As we take communion, as we sing, talk to God. 
Ask him to help you to hear and to heed his spiritual wake-up call. For some of you, that's a spiritual wake-up call for the first time. It's a call to embrace your need for him and the good news of the gospel that shows how he has met your need. But for others of us, it is about returning to the good news of the gospel and remembering this. I need you to hear this. Some of you, some of you are here this morning, and on the outside, people think that you look like a really good Christian, that you have all your stuff put together, that you're really, that you're really pretty strong in your faith, but on the inside, what you know is that there is is like there is there is a sense of deadness and apathy and stagnation that is there. There's a lack of there's a lack of vibrancy. See, Jesus sees that, and He knows that, and He's come to you in grace this morning to invite you to wake up to it, to acknowledge it before Him, not to hide it, not to blame shift it, but to be honest with Him about it. To ask him to wake your heart up to him, to the good news about the gospel and who he is and all that he has done. Be honest with God about that. Be honest with one another in this community. It's, you are safe here to acknowledge that you're not doing all right. Like this community is a safe place to be honest by the fact that you don't have everything together and that your heart might be not in a spot where you want it to be with Jesus, even though on the outside it might look all right. You are safe to be honest with us and with God here about that. But choose to be honest with him. The first step towards revival is admitting what God already says is true. For all of us, the invitation is to repent of sin, to remember the gospel, to keep coming back to the good news about who Jesus is, and the fact that we fall short, but that he meets our need for us. Ask him to help you, to enable you to repent of sin. Maybe that's rebellion against him. Maybe it's a spiritual apathy that you have towards him. Ask him to help you. He is the one who can empower it to happen. <clears throat> but more than that, ask him that he would help you to set your eyes on him. That he would help you to put your trust in him to make you worthy. And to fuel a passion of life lived for him, the one who makes you worthy, the one who secures your right standing with him, when you see that you'll be able to live in the midst of any situation, a life empowered of faithful obedience unto him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful that you would, uh, that you would remind us this morning of our reality before you and that you would in your grace give us a spiritual wake-up call God, all of us at various points in our lives, we need that from you. We need you to, to shake us awake to our spiritual apathy and slumber. God, all of us need you to do it once for us in the beginning, but we need you to keep doing it ongoingly for us. God, we are grateful that you come to this church not in anger for them, not, not with guilt and shame, but you come, Jesus, before them with an offer of life to them. And so we ask you, King Jesus, that you would help us as you help this church to receive it from you. You would help us to not buy into the lies that, of guilt and shame, but instead the offer of life that you have for us that comes first when we admit to you that we need you. So thanks that you would come to wake us up from our spiritual thumber. That you would help us to become alive and alert to you and to life in you. God, only the gospel can enable that to happen. And so we pray that ongoingly every day you'd help us to keep coming back to those truths so that we might live lives alive not just with reputations unto you, not just with, not just with a reputation of being alive, but with a reality of life in you. We pray, amen.